This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our look at covenant theology. So let me encourage you to turn there, Genesis chapter 3. If you remember last week we talked about the covenant of works and we talked about man being created in the image of God and the, the structure that God set up for man. Well this week we're going to talk about how all of that is going to crumble and we're going to talk about the fall of man. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with the scriptures. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. In a time when truth is whatever a person decides, uh, we know that the real truth, the absolute truth, are what come from your word. So help us to lean upon it. Help us to trust in it. Help us to set aside our own desires, our own contrived wisdom, and trade it for you. Trade it for your truth and your love and your mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. Open our hearts as we read here about how man fell into sin. And help us to not see ourselves as better as our first parents, but but to join them in our need for a Savior. And it's in that Savior's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So one of the things that I thought about this week as I came to this text, and this is a text that I've taught a lot, is, and you guys know that I'm a biology teacher and I'm fascinated with life in general, and it made me think of viruses. The human body works really well under normal conditions. If you if you thought about all the things that we don't have to think about in order to, to sustain life, it's pretty incredible. And we're very thankful that we don't have to think about all those things because it would be rough. We would never stop thinking about, like, take a breath, beat heart, right? Doing all these other things that, go on, that are going on. So normally our, our body works really well. Well, when we get a virus, we begin to feel run down. We have all these other different symptoms that are going on. And why is that? Well, a virus, what it does is it's basically just, it's not even a living thing. It's just DNA, which is like information, and a, a shell. And the DNA has the, the DNA inside the virus has the code to make that shell. And so essentially a virus is its own reproduct, its own reproduction mechanism, its own reproduction method and message. And what does it use to do that? It uses your cell's machinery. That thing that's supposed to work flawlessly and all good, it actually gets in there and uses your own cell's workings to make more copies of itself until finally that process kills that cell. And then all the new viruses that were made in that cell go out and infect other cells. And then you're, you're in trouble. You're sick. It actually does this at such a rapid rate that we can tell pretty quickly when we're sick. And again, a virus is not a living thing. But there are lots of viruses that have the capability of destroying living things very quickly as they spread. They only leave destruction in their wake. They take something that was working flawlessly and they break it down to nothing. And they have the capability of 
as I thought about sin and its entrance into the world, it made me think of sin as almost like a virus that infected the world. There is not a corner of our world that does not have the taint of sin on it. Sin only destroys. And it does that by taking what is good and what is right and just turning it on its head, turning it upside down, making it bad and wrong and not working. And it's not a silent force. It's not like just this thing that's kind of moving around silently and infecting people. It exists in the heart of every human being and in the evil spiritual forces of this world. And because of sin, the things that God made perfect and good are corrupted and they're in need of a cure. And so today, we're going to look at the first sin, how all of this came to be and what led up to that. And then we're going to look at its effects on the world and then finally, and thankfully, looking at the Savior that can deliver us from it all. Before we do that, let's go to the text and stand together as we read. It's Genesis chapter 3. We'll read it in its entirety. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, Did, I, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she, tr she took of its fruit and ate, and then she gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But they heard the sound, or and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the, to the woman he said, I, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree, of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all your days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which, he, for which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So before we dive into the text here, I just want to say a few things. Um, in the church today, and across all denominations, conservative, liberal, mainline, and more uh, biblical type denominations, all denominations, there is a current argument and struggle of the historicity of Adam and the historicity particularly of this story that we read today. And so I want us, I want to make sure that we all understand that the New Testament assumes this story to be historical. So we will as well, uh, as a church. Jesus saw this as historical. He quoted from it. This is a part of history. We're going to keep the Bible intact and we're going to believe that it's history and real as well. And one thing that I want us to see before we get into the story as well is I want us to make sure we understand the state of the garden before sin. And so look at uh, chapter 2, verse 25, right before chapter 3. Now, if you read this in front of a group of middle schoolers, they're going to uh, pay attention to one word, so I want to help us pay attention to another word. All right, verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Well, they were both naked, which is a product of them not being ashamed. And that's what I want us to focus on. They were unashamed. There was no shame in the garden. We can't fathom that. We don't know what no shame looks like. Can, can you imagine waking up and not having the, the slightest hint of care or concern of what the world might think of you when it looks at you. We don't know that. And so in the garden, there was not the slightest hint of shame. Why? Because there didn't need to be. There was no sin. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And so Adam and Eve were completely free in that regard. That is freedom. The complete lack of any kind of shame or guilt. We can't even imagine that. And so the very next verse, verse 1, remember Moses didn't stop and then write a 3 there. So the very next verse says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Moses is trying to set those two things in sharp opposition to one another. And he even uses... Hebrew words, therefore, unashamed and, and, and crafty that sound an awful lot alike. All right? These two words sound an awful lot alike, 
so they're going to catch us when we read it, if you read it in Hebrew. But they're completely different and even opposite in meaning. It's this play on words that Moses is really trying to catch us with here. The serpent's presence in the garden also denotes what? That something has already happened to disrupt God's creation. There has already been a fall in the angelic realm that causes this being of the serpent to be in the garden and be to be crafty and deceitful in the first place. We're not given a whole lot of information in Scripture about that, and there's a lot of texts that are kind of controversial concerning that, so I don't want to go into that too much. But we do know that this creature has fallen, and this and Genesis doesn't explicitly say that this creature, the serpent, is Satan, but the rest of Scripture helps us with that. Revelation 12, Revelation and Genesis are right there together. They just they parallel one another. Calls him the serpent of old. And so this is Satan, this creature here in the garden. And another thing to talk about Satan, you've heard me say this before and I'll say it a lot. Satan, the creature, is not in some sort of dualistic struggle with God. They're not trading blows with one another while we watch and hope that God will win. What does verse 1 tell us about, about this serpent? That he is one of God's creation. That he is not an equal and opposite force to God. He has a creature that has gone off the rails. That is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is a creature that is not following the order that God has laid down. And for that, he should be punished. That's not what happens here. He is a deceiver, and he's a father of lies, and we'll see that very first and foremost here in this story. So I'll keep that in the back of our mind. So let's look then, the first sin. And so what does the serpent say? He doesn't waste any time. And notice, who does he go to? The woman. That's not an accident. The man was the head of the household. The man was the one that was spoken to directly from God. Do this, and you shall live. And so, of course, he goes to the woman. Not to say that the woman is any less uh, culpable for keeping God's law, but the serpent knows, I'm not going to go to the top. I'm going to start at the bottom. And what does he say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And so, the serpent starts out with a challenge to God's word. But more than that, this is an insinuation as well. That God is somehow holding something back from his beloved man, from Adam and Eve. That God is somehow holding something back that would be really good for Adam and Eve to have, but God's keeping it from them. And the, and the serpent is here saying, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Did God say anything remotely like that? No. But he's beginning by putting this seed of doubt into the brain of Eve as she is listening here. They should have immediately realized something was wrong. If you read through scripture, and of course Adam and Eve didn't have the scriptures to, uh, to, to help them with this, but as we read through this, anytime animals talk, it's not good. Alright? And it's just not. There's not a good outcome there. And and Adam and Eve, they, 
had to name the animals. And they were put under them, and they were to subdue them. And this animal walks up and starts questioning the Creator. Eve should have just grabbed the garden hoe and chopped its head off. But she didn't. She listened. She gave it an ear, which was the first problem. This is Satan's first deception. And this is his this is his most powerful tool. This is actually like one of the only tools he uses. Ligon Duncan, who's a uh, pastor and professor, he said this of Satan's tools. He says, one of Satan's most used tools is to get us to blur the distinction between happiness and holiness. To get us to blur the distinction between happiness and and holiness. What is Eve called to? She's called to holiness, but what is Satan saying? Well, maybe there's something here that could make you happy. And so Satan, whereas God has never done that, what does God say is happiness? Remember how blessings and commands were set together? God never made the distinction between holiness and happiness. Those two things should coexist, but, but Satan's saying, no, Actually, to be happy, you need to do something that God doesn't want you to do. And so if Satan can convince us, and we should be careful of this, if Satan can convince us that in order to be happy, we have to disobey God, that's when he has us. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. Every single sin that we commit is us doing just that. Trading our holiness for our idea of happiness. And what is Eve's response? She attempts to correct him, but she gets a few things wrong here. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she's added a little bit to God's law. The prohibition of touching it is not found in chapter 2. This could be a sign that Eve is already starting to buy into Satan's deception. That law, that God's law is just too oppressive. We can't even touch that tree, much less eat of it. And some, and now Satan's beginning to win out here. And what? Notice her reasoning. The reason that you don't eat of the tree is what? Well, if you eat of it, you're going to die. Why do we follow God's law? We follow God's law to glorify Him, and for our own good. We don't follow it because we're afraid of the punishments that may come after. When we ask our kids to do something, we don't ask them to do it so that we won't punish them. We ask them to do it because we know what's best for them and because we're their parents. And God gave them commands to follow, not so that he wouldn't kill them, but so that he could be glorified and for their good. And what does Eve say? Well, we can't do that because we'll die if we do. She gives the wrong reason following God. So logically, it follows that if you can remove the consequence, then the law itself loses its purpose. Satan's got Eve right where he wants her. And this is where Satan comes at next. What does he say? You shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. This is a direct attack attack and a direct contradiction of God's word. This is a direct attack on his sovereignty. This is a direct attack on his authority, the order of the creation that he has made. The creature 
is now attempting to rewrite the Creator. That's what all sin is. All sin is the creature rewriting the words of the Creator. This is the same theme as earlier. Well, God's holding out on you. And now, and Satan gives a qualifier here. Why is he doing that? Well, he knows that when you do this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Why is he, why is he holding out on you? Because he's afraid of you. He's afraid that if you do this, if you eat of this tree, that you're going to be like him and that you'll take his throne away from him. Because that's ultimately what this is, right? Satan's saying, well, you should battle God for his throne and you should take it from him. Because if you eat of this tree, you'll be able to do just that. What's wrong with this? How did man, how did God create man? In his own image. Satan says, well, no, if you, if you do this, then you'll be like God. What's the problem with that? We're already like him in that regard. We're not the creator but we are created in His image. We are created in knowledge already. Adam should already know what good and evil is. Good, do what the Lord says. Evil, the opposite of that. He should already know the blessings of God. He should already know that this curse exists. The line is very clearly drawn for Adam, but Satan says, no, there's more for you to know. And you can gain that just by eating this fruit. You can have the authority of God you can have the sovereignty of God. Your eyes will be opened. That's a tantalizing gift, isn't it? We all like to know something that other people don't know. There's only a couple people in the garden now, so perhaps they would like to get a leg up and just know something. Maybe even know something that God doesn't know because God is somehow pulling the wool over their eyes. And what I want you to see here, too, is that Satan is a trickster. But Satan also uses the truth in his trickery. Because we'll see in just a moment that this idea of their eyes being opened is, is a reality. So what is the woman doing? Well, she goes through this process. She saw if the tree was safe. She saw that it looked nice. She said, yeah, it looks good looking tree. Pretty safe. And then she saw something that you can't simply see from looking at a piece of fruit. She says it saw that it had the ability to make one wise. Only because she had been told that ahead of time. God never told her that. She could have surely ate of all the trees of the garden. But for some reason now, this one is more tantalizing than anything else because a serpent walks up to her, or slithers, or whatever the serpent did, and says, hey, you should try this one because God said you shouldn't. There is no shame in this garden Somehow she says, I lack wisdom, and this fruit will give it to me. So she ate it. She gave it to Adam, who apparently was sitting idly by while this whole thing happened. And watched the whole thing, and he ate it as well. And then what does the scripture immediately tell us? They ate it, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. What's happening? Something that had never been in the garden had now is now entering the garden. Just like the snake said, their eyes would be opened, and they were. But what 
they see? Their nakedness. What do they see? Shame. And what do they do in their shame? Something that had normally happened to bunch. I mean, you can imagine. It says, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I bet they'd heard that before. God walking in the garden. God made them for fellowship with him. It wasn't an unknown sound. Normally I would imagine they would run to God. But what did they do this time? They ran from him. They hid from him because they had this shame. They clothed themselves immediately. So I want us to think about our own sin. Understand that any sin, no matter how big or how small, is attacked as an attack on the sovereignty and the authority of God. When we sin, we go through this exact same progression that Eve went through in order to eat the fruit. We trade the holiness that we would have in following the law of God and we trade it for this apparent happiness that we might get by being able to sit on God's throne. We have been duped into believing that you can't have happiness and holiness at the same time. That God is somehow holding out on us. And that if he were truly loving, and if he were truly a good God, that he would give us what we want. Talk to an unbeliever. What's their first criticism of God? He's not good. He doesn't love us. Since he won't, since he won't do what we want, what are we going to do? We're going to have it our way. Whatever the sin is, it could be something like disobeying your parents when you're young, stealing, lying, adultery, anger, jealousy. All of those sins are about me saying, you know what, God, I cannot possibly be happy by doing it your way, so I'm going to do it this way instead and be happy. Whatever it is, we exchange the truth of God's goodness and his provision for the lie that the creature is better than the creator. And we do ourselves, and let me caution us here, we do ourselves an extreme disservice when we put ourselves and our sin in a different category than that of Adam and Eve. We need a Savior just as much as they do. And just like them, we have to believe that God sent one in order to find relief from that. And so what are the effects of this sin in the world? God asked the question. And what, what, what amazes me here is that God did not have to ask questions. What did he say would happen if they ate of the fruit? You will surely die. So God could have just snapped him down dead and that would have been fine. That would have been completely justified in doing so. But he asked the question, did you eat of that fruit? Or he even says, where are you? As if the creator needs to know where someone is. He's gracious to them. He asks questions to them. What do they do? They begin playing the blame game and passing the buck to the next would-be guilty party. God asks Adam first, because Adam is supposed to be the head of all creation, and the head of his household, and then he swings and misses. Well, it was that woman that you gave me. He even tries to blame God a little bit in this. That you gave me. God asks Eve, and she says, no, that serpent, he tricked me, or I wouldn't have done it, of course. So finally he looks at the serpent, who's the bottom of the pecking order, and begins handing down his judgment. And so I want to start with what he says to Adam, or actually what he says to Eve. 
Because I, I want us to notice here, remember we last week we talked about the blessings of the covenant of works and how sin is going to turn it on its head. And we're going to see that just right here in these judgments that the Lord's passing down. What was the first, the first blessing and the first command we were given? Be fruitful and multiply. What's the very first thing that he says to Eve? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Turned it on its head. No longer is that what it should have been. But it's a painful thing. Why is it painful? Because of sin. And this just this isn't actually the giving of birth, which is a painful thing, apparently. I've, I've never done that. I've, I've seen it happen. But this is also the, the upbringing of children, the bringing forth of children. And we all, as parents, share in this pain. And our children share in that pain as well as we make mistakes doing it. It's not a fun process. It's hard. It is a blessing, but we have to really scratch and search for that blessing as opposed to it just being right there in our face. Children, even because of their sinful nature, rebel against their parents. The very first authority that they have, they want to rebel against. Just like their parents want to rebel against their God. And what does else does he say to the woman? Your desire shall be for your husband. And again, this is not some sort of like loving desire. This is a desire for his spot as the head of the house. You look in chapter 4, it's right across the page. Verse 7, God uses this same language to talk about sin and its relationship to Cain. Because if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That does not mean that sin is like in love with Cain. That means that sin wants to overtake Cain but you must rule over it. So what's happening in the home that was once peaceful and happy and a blessing, now there's a power struggle. Now it's, now it's difficult to be fruitful and multiply. All the blessings and the order of the family is now knocked on its head and every family is dysfunctional. Every family needs he also says, remember, what is the next blessing? Subdue it and have dominion over it. Rule over the earth, which I have given you. What does he say to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you. The blessing and the dominion, the blessing of dominion, the blessing of work and ownership and all these things are turned on its head now. And now when Adam goes out to farm, he's going to find things called thorns and thistles. Even finding basic food has become a chore, whereas it used to be, which tree am I going to eat today? It used to be a pleasant thing to walk through the garden and find food, but now he's got to till the earth and he's got to take, he's got to get plants out of his way where he's never had to do that. He's got obstacles in order just to eat. And what about the tree of life? What is God doing about the tree of life? Well, it's not life anymore. Because what does he say to them? You are dust. And to dust you will return. Created in my image, yes. But that's not what he reminds them of here. You are dust. 
you are frail. You are completely dependent on me. I'm the one that looked at the dust and gave it life, and that's what you're going to become again, lifeless. And he banished them from the garden. And it specifically lets us know that the reason for doing that is so that they would be removed from which blessing that they used to have, the tree of life, so that they could no longer have access to that. And they put a cherubim, which is apparently some scary-looking angel, and a flaming sword that followed them wherever they went. So there was no like way to get in the garden. And if we just focused our attention on Adam and Eve, we might think, well, this is horrible. And it is horrible. Let's go back to the serpent's punishment. The serpent is told that he's no longer going to be able to walk, but he's going to slither. But, in verse 15, look here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity, this word in the Hebrew is a deep-rooted hatred, almost like a murderous kind of hatred. And the Lord, this is a divinely appointed enmity. The Lord says there is going to be two separate peoples, and they're not going to like one another. And it's going to start with you, woman, and you, snake. But then it's also going to go on to her offspring and to his offspring. Now, that doesn't mean like the new snake population. But you're going to start seeing, in chapter 4, a division. You're going to see one who seek after God, and one that seeks after their own. You see Abel, and you see Cain. And Cain immediately kills Abel. That enmity is real. It's a real thing. And then you see Seth, and his whole line that followed after God. And Cain, and his line that followed after all kinds of other things. And you see the lines of the serpent and the lines of the woman. And they're constantly at odds with one another. Read the book of Genesis. It's all throughout that. Read, Keep reading. You'll see the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. And they're constantly at odds with one another. There are two factions in Scripture. Those who are gods and those who hate the people of God. And right here in verse 15 we're told about that. But what else are we told about? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this? Who is this he that will deliver a death blow to the snake? Who is this he that will be struck on the heel? And in ancient times, to be struck on the heel by a snake, that was a euphemism for you're dead. Who was it that was going to kill the serpent but die doing it? Let's read to the end and we find out. This is a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, in the midst of all of this judgment and pain, we see grace. We see a covenant being made with God and himself, saying, there will be a Redeemer. And there will be redemption. And everything that's been broken right here and right now will be made new again. Moses, who was writing this, knew that that Savior would come. And 
he hoped for his day. And all the men that would come after him hoped for his day. That Savior is Jesus. And that is, and he is the one who can deliver us. Genesis 3.15 represents this new promise to the people of God. This promise to deliver us from sin. To deliver us from death. And this is what we call the covenant of grace. This is the very beginning of the covenant of grace. If you're asked, where does the covenant of grace begin in Scripture? You can find it right here in Genesis 3.15. So as we move through the Old Testament, we're going to see lots of outworkings of this covenant. But the point is clear. A Savior is promised that would make everything right again. And this, Genesis 3.15, and the substance of this promise is what all the Old Testament saints look to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of these men believed in this promise. And because of the belief in this promise, they were saved. Who saved them? He saved them. Jesus Christ saved them. They would feel the weight of the curse of this sin. Just read about these men. Their families were dysfunctional, if that's a, if that's a good enough word to say that. They feel the weight of the curse. And we feel that same weight. We feel it in our personal lives. We feel it in our families, our work. We feel it in the world around us. It's, it's heavy sometimes. It's, it's very real. We can feel it almost. The world, just like Eve, chose to reject God. And they chose to reject the fear of God. And the wisdom of God. And they exchanged it for a promise of their own wisdom. Their own autonomy. And even the promise that God would somehow be afraid of them. We need a deliverer. And that Savior and that deliverer is Jesus Christ. And it's by believing in Him. It's by believing in the promises back there in Genesis. And throughout the rest of Scripture. That we have access to the blessings that we lost. That all of these judgments that God passed down on the people will be turned on their heads and he will make every single thing new again. And we'll have access again to the tree of life. And we'll have access to all these good things that God had. As believers in Jesus Christ, once again, we have access to him. We have access to God the Father. We are no longer cast out of the garden, but what are we promised? I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what we're promised. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly once again. We can have access. Remember, we read last week about the tree of life that will be in the city. We'll have access to that. In Christ, all of the things that we have that had so much purpose and hope and value back in Genesis 1 and 2, Again, we can find purpose and hope and value in those things, even in the midst of sin. Our families, when we look around us, families are just being destroyed. We can find value and purpose in our families in Christ. Our work, I mean, just go to a workplace that is full of unbelievers. It's not valuable. We can find value in it. We can stand out amongst the crowd in that. This invading curse of sin, just like a virus, it cuts 
through our lives. And we struggle with it. We will struggle with it. But Jesus Christ is the truth. He's not only the one that can remove it, but he's the one that will usher us into eternity so that we'll have no more pain, no more hurt, no more shame. And we'll once again be able to live unashamed and free. So for, for us, brothers and sisters, for us, this message is for us to remember our sin and not take it lightly, but most of all, remember our Savior. The world is desperate to know him. They just don't know it. And we have the ability, we have the authority even, in Christ to reintroduce them to their Creator. And we have His very Word to do it with. And the message of love is not only for our souls. And this message of redemption is not only for us, but it's for the souls of the lost. And so let us be comforted, but also let us give comfort through this promise of a Savior and through this promise of redemption. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read here back in Genesis, as you were promised, we, we have hope. We have hope that the garden that you made and the perfection that you made for your people can be restored unto us. And that when you told us that you're going to prepare a place for us, you really meant it. And we can have that because of what you've done for us. So Lord, help us to bring that sort of comfort to a dying and lost world. To a world that doesn't know you. To a world that is looking behind every corner to find blessing and to find value. They can only find it in you. Lord, help us to be bold in sharing.